We now turn our attention to a portion of God's Word read from the Old Testament, uh, the book of Proverbs. The portions of Scripture read thus far, uh, as you'll see uh, soon, have direct bearing on the sermon. So I hope you're, you should be paying attention, even if they don't directly relate to it. But especially because they do, I invite you to, to pay more careful attention. Proverbs chapter 12, verses 16 through 20. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Amen. And would you now uh, bow your heads as I pray? Uh, and actually beforehand, I invite you to turn uh, your Bibles to Psalm 92. Psalm 92, and just have that ready. Uh, and in the meantime, I will uh, pray for us as you're getting that text ready. Blessed you are, Lord, great God, for the testimonies of the prophets, we bless you. For the statutes of your law, we bless you. For the gospel of Christ and the witness of the apostles, we bless you, O glorious God. Grant to us the spirit of your glory and the brightness of your presence that we might read and hear your word and so understand. For we ask through Jesus Christ, our gracious Lord. Amen. And now would you, uh, again, please follow along with me as I read. A chap, uh, pro, pardon me, Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. To sing praises to your name, O Most High. To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp. To the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. And at the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. 
The stupid man cannot know, and the fool cannot understand this. But though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox, and you have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies, and my ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is God's word. Since uh, 2002, uh, the World Happiness Report, yes, there is such a thing, has reached, researched the happiest countries and the most miserable ones. They've ranked them all in order. And to determine that, they use six measurements. Uh, gross domestic product per capita, social support, healthy life expectancy, Freedom to make your own decisions and life choices. Generosity of the general population. And then lastly, perceptions of internal and external corruption levels. Okay, those are the six metrics for the World Happiness Report. Out of, I think, Denmark. And their happiest country for 2023 is Finland. Any Finnish people here? Oh, look at that. Oh, we just, he's just beaming. He's radiant. The Finns. The U.S., uh, number five. Well, what about you, each of you? What moves your sort of internal joy meter? Where would you rate on some sort of happiness scale? What's that one thing, or maybe a combination of some, some things, but really that one thing above all else that you instinctively turn to for joy? Especially when seemingly everything around us and maybe even inside internally your own life, joy is at a premium. Tonight, uh, we're going to consider joy, specifically how to cultivate and sustain it in our lives. I've titled this sermon, Gladness and God's Greatness. And I want us to think, how does this psalm connect 
these two ideas. Gladness, our gladness, and God's greatness. In Psalm 92, we're, we'll especially consider three things. First, we're going to consider, and it's really in the order of, I've sort of broke, broken up the psalm, or I think it breaks it up, breaks up itself in three natural ways. First, tireless praise. Second, heedless arrogance. And finally, endless vitality. So that's the plan for uh, our time tonight. Before we get to the first point, a brief word about the psalm's title, a song for the Sabbath. Very briefly, why was it given this title? Itself considered a part of Christian scripture. Admittedly, the answer isn't too clear. Is it referring to the Sabbath rest that God took from his act of creation as recorded in Genesis? Or is it a Sabbath rest for the people of God? You and me and the church worldwide. Commentators haven't reached a consensus, but it, it does leave uh, plenty of room for various possibilities. Maybe it could be even a combination. All right. That's the title. Let's move on to the first point. Tireless praise. Would you please look with me at verses 1 through 4? It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning, your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. And at the works of your hands, I sing for joy. And right away, the psalm begins asserting it's right, without explanation, it's right to give the Lord thanks and praise. Simply for who he is and what he's done, is doing and will do. And in the context of understanding the Sabbath, as ceasing from the six days of work and creation, even more so. But it's more than simply right. Like, you know, it's good to give thanks. We just, it's a good thing to do. The psalmist says it's good, but good in what way? Well, really in all senses of the word. It's good in that it fits the situation. It's right in itself, and even feeling good. Not only because we're reflecting on God's steadfast love and faithfulness, but also for what it does to and for us. That is, the very act of doing that makes us glad. Why and how? The psalmist says, by looking up at the Lord, thinking and reflecting on what he has done. Look with me at verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad. How? By your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Now, what is the psalmist referring to? It might be the work of creation that I referred to earlier. It's a song for the Sabbath. That is looking at what he has made 
gazing up to the heavens and marveling at the stars, the planets, and the galaxies, pondering the seas, not only how deep and powerful they are, but what they contain, right? So looking up, looking out, looking at everything below. On the ground, from great mammals to the smallest insects, and of course, outward to people. Just take a moment right now and consider how incredibly different we are even in this very room. You're very different. You're a lot alike in some ways, but you're very different from one another. But the whole of humanity, different, not just in personality, but in language, culture, appearance, music, art, and food, and these, and in so many other ways, the psalmist is here encouraging us to consider and reflect on God's creation and then to step back and to marvel and wonder at God's hands producing it and then praising him because of it. So that's the first potential way that uh, uh, the psalmist is referring to the works But there's a second way works might be used here in Psalm 92. And that is the work of salvation. And you can see this from verses 2 and 3. To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. The Psalms are, are filled with this notion of declaring God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And so... It's perfectly reasonable that the works here uh, refer to God's saving acts, demonstrating his love and his faithfulness to us. We can even see, uh, see this in even, even in how the Lord is referenced in the first stanza. Lord in uppercase use, meaning Yahweh, emphasizing his covenant love toward his people. That is not accidental. Right? You ought to be saved. Some people say that automatically when they read Scripture. Sometimes I do that too. Instead of saying Lord, the upper the uppercase, L-O-R-D, they say Yahweh. Yahweh. And you ought to be thinking whether it's said or not. When you, when you see it, you ought to be thinking, that's our covenant God. That's our covenant God. That's our covenant God. That's what you ought to be thinking in your mind and imagining as well. That he will always be our God and we, his people, no matter what. All right. So that's the why the psalmist psalmist implores us to thank God. Okay? We consider the works of his hands, perhaps in creation or salvation, maybe both. So how should we give thanks? How should we do it? I've mentioned part of it already. By speaking... That is to declare the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. And note the duration, not just in the morning or confined with Sunday morning worship service or in the evening, rather than be confined to a specific part of the day. This is praise that is ongoing, encompassing every part of the day. Which raises the question, Does this mean that the psalmist encourages a worldly detachment so we can exclusively praise God with our lips 
24-7? Well, of course not. Rather, it encourages us to so think on the Lord's works throughout all hours of the day that it spills over not only into sporadic, that it spills over into, spor- into sporadic outbursts of declaring God's praise. That's the point that the psalmist here is making. Note the second way that we praise God for his mighty works. Something we've done already. You've done already this morning, and you've done tonight, and you may do later tonight. And that is by singing. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. How? To sing praises to your name. To the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. And this inclusion of a variety of instrumentation is why many commentators suggest that Psalm 92 is indeed a song for the Sabbath. Hence the the inscription. That is what we're doing right now. Gathering together as God's people to worship him. Of course, lutes, harps, lyres were the instruments of the day when this was written. Today, the church normally gathers on Sunday to worship the Lord, incorporating a variety of musical styles. Some churches undoubtedly still use lutes and harps, and others electric guitars and drums, some majestic organs, and everything in between. Now, now here's the point regarding instrumentation. I, mean, I wonder if I should say it, but I'll just go ahead and getting myself talking about music and worship. Boy, that, I'm, that's dicey. This could be my last time up here. The psalmist isn't prescribing or preferring one musical style over the other. That's not the point of Psalm 92. Rather, he's rightly recognizing a more fundamental point. That musical instruments aid the human voice in singing praise to God. That's the point he's making. Some of us are more skilled in praising God with singing. I heard, I'll just, I heard a little more on this. I heard just beauty coming from this over here on that last psalm uh, that I don't recall ever singing before. That's not to throw shade on this side. I'm just, it's not a competition. So, we have choirs, right? Others with instruments. Sometimes they're done separately, often together, singing and making melody to the Lord for his mighty works. Unless you think that it's merely good and right to praise God for his mighty acts as the ultimate end, note what effect God's works have on the psalmist. Right there in verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. It's, it's emphasized in different language, but the same concept. It's not enough for us to marvel at God's handiwork. But they should even produce gladness and joy. Sometimes in our circles, 
You know which ones those are. Do I, I don't need to say. In our circles, which often emphasize right knowing and thinking above all else, we end up, I dare say, with a very different paraphrase, which might go something like this. For you, O Lord, have made me pensive by your work, and at the works of your hands I ruminate. Right? That might be... Hmm. How different are the words of John Calvin writing on Psalm 92? Listen to what he wrote. We are the proper objects of his faithfulness and goodness, and it would argue inexcusable indifference if they did not elicit our cordial praise. But not only are we to diligently observe them, he also writes, the psalmist that is, that we're to be, oh, pardon me, not the psalmist, I'm still with Calvin. Calvin says this, still referring to Psalm 92, I, I wish you had seatbelts in, I mean, just hold on, hold on to your pew body, you gotta just hold on to the person next to you. Here's what he says next, he were to be excited, these are his words, excited by a holy joy, to the celebration of his praise. What? John Calvin said such thing? Yes, he did. So we mustn't minimize verse 4. O oh Lord, you have made me glad at your work, by your work, and at the works of your hands I sing for joy. Some of you right now may think we need to praise God solely because he's worthy of it. Right? It's, it's our duty. And it is. There is a duty. All of humanity. Don't, hear me loud and clear on this. Every creature, every person that has ever existed, is existing and will exist, has a duty to praise God and to thank Him. There is a duty element there. So I don't, I'm not in any way shirking from that. But it's not mere duty, okay? Because the psalmist provides another motivator, one that may initially be, uh, seem self-serving, and that is to increase our gladness and our joy. His basis for gladness and joyfulness in verse 4 are verses 1 through 3. That is, the works of his hands. And these two are not incompatible. Rather, they go hand in hand. Right motivation and expression of praising the Lord. Maybe you're listening and you're going, ah, I just find it, I gotta tell you, I find it hard. Find it hard on my best day to praise God. Whether or not you're just struggling to find a reason or just your, uh, your lack of motivation for it or a combination. Well, you're not alone. C.S. Lewis famously stumbled over this point. He found it difficult to muster up the motivation to praise God until he realized how often we praise even the most ordinary things. 
all the time, right? And that we don't have to manufacture or fake it. Rather, it comes naturally. We can't help expressing it. In other words, there's an extricable link between praise and enjoyment. Listen to what Lewis writes. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The Scotch, the Scottish Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Here's uh, another way to put it. If you would have a life of joy and gladness, I dare say, a happy life. You all want a happy life. Everyone in the world, if you ask them, even in the, the, the bottom rung of the world happiness scale, what's it, the world happiness scale? I forget, whatever that was. You ask every person in there, unless they have something terribly wrong with them, maybe... If you ask, do you want to be happy? Well, of course you do. Uh, yes. No one in the right mind would say, I, I, want to be, I want to be miserable. Thank you very much. Back to the point I was making. If you, if you would have a life of joy and gladness, I dare say a happy life in the deepest sense of that word, it begins with the simple act of looking. Looking. Looking at God and his mighty works, both in creation and salvation. Not just your personal salvation, but God's saving acts throughout history, from cover to cover. And then... By doing so, you become so intellectually and emotionally affected by these works that they spill over into praise, both in words and song. Now, perhaps you struggle to conjure up gratitude to the Lord, whether for who he is or what he has done, which raises a question, so what, what can I do, right? What? What can I do? I'm not there. I'm, there's a chasm. I, get, I hear you, but I'm not getting it. It's like Teflon. Richard Baxter's Majestic Christian Directory, which I have mentioned before, has a section on thankfulness. Very helpful. Here's what he writes. He says, Let the greatness of the manifold mercies of God be continually before your eyes. Thankfulness is caused by the due apprehension of the greatness of mercies. But if you either know them not to be mercies or know them, know that or know not that they are mercies to you or believe not what is said and promised to you in the gospel or forget them or think not of them or make light of them through the corruption of your minds. You kind of that covers a lot of ground there, doesn't it? 
Here's the upshot, he says. You cannot be thankful for them. Well, of course, right? I, I don't see it. I'm not, I don't understand. I don't know. Why would I be thankful? Give thanks. The, the first uh, the sort of um, imperative of the psalm would just bounce off you. It wouldn't make any sense. He then lists 15 ways that we can kindle these mercies anew to jog our memories and affection, resulting in expressing appropriate thanksgiving. And here I did, I was like, I was just going, and then I thought, you know what? This isn't, I didn't include this in the sermon, but I thought, well, here's, here's the book. I'm gonna, I bookmarked it, and I thought, I'll just read a few samples. There's 15, I'm not going to read them all, but it's a sample. You want to jog? Jog your memory. Here's a few things that he says to help us to think on. The love of God and giving you a redeemer. The covenant of grace. The aptness of means for calling us to Christ. The efficacy of all these means. The company of those that fear the Lord and their faithful admonitions. The mercies of our relations or habitations or estates. I'm just skimming this, okay? There's 15. And, and they're lengthy. The manifold deliverance of our bodies from enemies, hurts, distresses, sicknesses, and death. The mercies of adversity. The communion which our souls have had with God. The use which he has made for us for the good of others. The mercies of all of our friends and of his servants. His patience and forbearance. Well, I'm at 14. I might as well give you the 15. Our hope of everlasting rest and glory when this sinful life is at an end. He's got more to say, and he, he elaborates. You take one of those and just ponder it for quite some time. His point, main point, is simple that if you can't properly Think of God's many mercies to you, and as he says, this manifold, these manifold ways, you're not going to have the impulse, the instinct to praise him. Do you see that? That's the point. So recap our first point. The psalmist here and elsewhere encourages us as God's people to praise and thank him endlessly. For his mighty works of creation and especially our salvation. I said there's three points. Point one was the longest. So let's move on to point two. Heedless arrogance. Please follow along as I read verses five through nine. How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass, all evildoers flourish. They're doomed to destruction forever, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. Behold, your enemies, O Lord, behold, your enemies shall perish, but all evildoers shall be scattered. Note the sharp contrast with the psalm's opening verses. If the, the person in Psalm in verses 1 through 4 has the sense that it's good and right to praise God, even making him glad... Right? Look at, look at the, uh, the, the, the sharp contrast, the opposite in verse 6. The stupid man cannot know. The fool can't understand this. Now, he's, of course, not referring to someone's mental or intellectual aptitude. 
poor test grades, low score on an IQ test, rather. This is someone who uh, refuses to look to God and consider his mighty acts. And his repeated refusal to do so only shows how foolishly stupid he is. Bart Simpson modeled this well. I'm not saying he's a boy of keen intellect. Uh, he might be. Uh, let, me, let me get to what he says. Here's one of his prayers before dinner. Dear God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. That's Bart. <clears throat> Many people with top-rate intellects are spiritually stupid fools. Now, would I ever say that to someone, maybe even someone here? In so many words, not unless I want a sore jaw the next day, or if I, unless I had a relationship, that they'd be able to receive those words in love and not as an insult or accusation. And yet that's precisely what the psalmist does. He's calling those who don't ponder and praise God for his mighty works as stupid fools. As if that's not bad enough, it only gets worse. For these people aren't only spiritually stupid, they're considered God's enemies, doomed to destruction forever. Verse 7. And not, this is important, because God sort of arbitrarily dooms them. But dooms them because, in the truest sense of the word, these people are his enemies. Look with me at verse 9. Behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Those who stubbornly remain in their spiritual ignorance will ultimately get what they want, which is complete and total separation from and sadly destruction by the God who made them and all things to glorify and enjoy him above all else. If the end result of God's enemies is that they're scattered and doomed to destruction, note the stark contrast compared with the one who praises and enjoys God. Which brings us to our third and final point, which is endless vitality. What are the long-term effects of a life spent thanking and praising God for his mighty acts and works? Look with me at verses 12 through 15. The righteous... Flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He's my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. It's important that the psalmist mentions two types of trees. Why palm trees? Because they emphasize how straight and erect they are. 
Meanwhile, cedar trees suggest strength. And so we should visualize right now a straight and strong tree, one that's flourishing. It's vibrant green, the greenest leaf you've ever seen, extravagantly lush, heavy with fruit, weighing down the branches. Okay, that's what the psalmist, this is poetry. It's okay to use your imagination in the context of a sermon as you're reading God's word, that is, this is poetry. Use your imagination. Why? You should be vision. The synapses should just be firing. Why is the tree more accurately, the person to whom the tree is compared, uh, described in this way? Because of verse 13, they are planted in the house of the Lord which is better translated, they've been transplanted. And by God himself, in the house of the Lord, in the courts of our God. And note, this is not a temporary flourishing. You know, like a weed you don't want in your garden that just shoots up real fast, and then, oh boy, and then it's gone the next day. It's not like the evildoers in the previous verses that sprout up quickly like grass. No, this is a type of flourishing with mileage. But note how long. Verse 14, they still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green. This imagery famously echoes Psalm 1, the gateway to the rest of the Psalter. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. And one wonders if this imagery was on the Apostle Paul's mind when he would later write in Colossians 1.13, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, this transplanted, to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It's as if in Psalm 92, the psalmist is putting before us two very different types of people. Right? There's... It's fair to say there's only two colors in his cram box. There's, there's red, part there's black and white. There's, there's nothing in between. And he's forcing us to look at them. They're right up in our face. And he's asking us, consider, what do we want to be like when we grow up? Kids, you're here. What do you want to be like when you grow up? Do you want to be spiritually stupid? If you do, then you will refuse to look to and acknowledge the Lord as the maker and sustainer of all things. If so, you can expect his judgment. That's not me, that's just, that's here and elsewhere throughout scripture. But the ones who acknowledge and joyfully praise him, not only permanence, spiritually speaking, but also note the life-givingness to those around her, that's that imagery of full of sap and green, even in old age. Do you ever meet people who are so crotchety and cranky that you wonder, how did you end up this way? Do you ever wonder, how did you, or how did I ever end up this way? What, something happened in my life. I used, what happened? The reasons might be varied and complicated. 
So I want to be careful. But, but don't you want to be that old person, ripe in years, who's warm, life-giving, joyful, even amid the frailties and limitations of old age? Here, friends, is a good place to start recalibrating your heart. Give thanks to the Lord. Sing praises to his name. Declare his steadfast love in the morning, his, his faithfulness at night. You can do that today. You can do that right now while you have life and breath and while some of you have the youth and energy. We're landing the plane. Do you want lasting joy? You don't need to check off the metrics of the World Happiness Report. Nor do you get it by pursuing joy as an end unto itself. Rather, Psalm 92 bids all of us, irrespective of nationality, socioeconomic status, race, gender, education, whatever gifts or even limitations you may have. You've got them. I've got them. To simply come. To come. Come to the Lord. Okay? And do what? Enjoy Him. Enjoy the Lord. And as you enjoy Him for who He is and what He's done, is doing and will do, that is, His mighty works that we've been talking about, you will experience more joy. Joy that is going to come out in ceaseless praise, thanksgiving, and worship. So yes, enjoy individually, as a church, as families and friends, but also with enjoyment, declare. Praising him for his mighty acts, which means knowing him as he's revealed in his word. And telling others about this mighty and magnificent God who redeems us and calls us his very own children. And you're so moved by his covenant steadfast love and faithfulness shown to us in Jesus that it produces joy. Joy that's not fleeting, but it's eternal, it's strong, it's residing and abiding in the presence of the Lord forever. Maybe this sounds impossible for some of you. You've been a Christian a long time. You've lost the joy in knowing God you once had. Friends, Psalm 92 bids us go back, remember the simple truths of the gospel, the amazingly glorious, unbelievable good news that in Jesus we can have full and forever forgiveness and eternal life. But more than that, that you were made to subjectively experience the joys of knowing him, of belonging to him, sharing in his death and resurrection. Perhaps some of you don't consider yourself a Christian. There's probably someone in this room right now. Maybe you've had little to no interest in becoming one, but I... I simply ask you to reconsider. I encourage you to think about the many wonders of creation. Would you open yourself up to the possibility, just this, the possibility that maybe, just maybe, there's a God behind it all, okay? Not a God who merely made the world, detached himself from it, but a personal, intimate God who entered 
He so identified with it, he entered into it, he became like us. Even though we're marred and mucked up with our, we've mucked it up with our sinful rebellion. And he sent his son Jesus into the world to become like us, fully God and yet fully man, to redeem us from our sin and ourselves, not because you deserve it, not because any of us did, but be, or because he had to, but because he loves us. He loves us. He takes pleasure in his people. I did read that from a psalm that they called worship, right? Would that you'd receive his steadfast love, not as punishment. Would that you'd experience his unchanging faithfulness, that his word is true. And not only to praise him, but to enjoy him. Would you consider Jesus even tonight? All of us. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you and we praise you. We declare your works and we sing to you. Would you make us glad by your great works, both in creation and salvation? And would you cause us to flourish? May we be like strong and fruitful trees, trees that can withstand pummeling winds. And if you will, when we are of riper years, that we be so full of life in Jesus, we be life-giving to all around, everyone around us. And would you give us spiritual eyes to see the beautiful correlation between praising you and increasing our and others' joy. And we especially thank you for Jesus who lived and died for us and rose again and now sits at your right hand interceding for us. For it's in his mighty and glorious name that we ask these things. And all God's people said, Amen.